Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whether it's from an 80s horror movie, a Simpsons joke, or your dad's record collection, you have undoubtedly heard the psychedelic sounds of Iron Butterfly's 17-minute-long opus, Inagata DeVito. This week, we're joined by Joey Ritter to discuss extended drum solos, wild conspiracies, and the bizarre career of these hard rock pioneers that sold over 30 million copies of their landmark album. Oh, won't you come with me? I'll take my hand. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed. And you can live off royalties forever. And it makes me wonder, is it just a wonder? So it's October of 1968. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead premieres in Pittsburgh. The Beatles' music videos for Hey Jude and Revolution debut on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. The Motion Pictures Association of America adopts the film rating system. American gold medalist Tommy Smith and bronze medalist John Carlos famously give the Black Power salute on the 200-meter medal podium during the Mexico City Olympics to protest racism and injustice. The Milwaukee Bucks play their first ever game. Radiohead's Tom York, actor Hugh Jackman, and reggae star Shaggy are all born. 
Rudy Giuliani marries his cousin Regina in the Bronx, and Iron Butterflies Anagata DeVita hits number 30 on the Hot 100. So welcome back to the show, Joey. And I got to ask, can you make it through this whole song? <laughs> yes, I did at least two or three times. But, wow. you know, I had to, like, be washing dishes or something else to occupy my time while my earbuds were in. Yeah. But it was it was a lot more of a fun listen and preparation than I anticipated. Um, I picked this song for two reasons. One, I don't know if you guys experience this with your parents or whatever, um, but people in their 70s, as soon as you say the P in podcast, they're already out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you know this episode is really going to drive listenership up of your uh, 70s demographic. Nice. So I think this will be... <laughs> The first podcast that my parents ever listened to. So my dad was huge into this song. Um, and, you know, the 60s are really out of my wheelhouse. So all the stuff you mentioned at the top, you know, what was going on at the time, there's a couple more things to add to that. I just kind of wanted to immerse myself in the, in the culture. It was an insane – it really gave 2020 – a run for its money, 1968, for sure. Yeah. So it, excited to get into it. It was a wild time. 1968, I mean, just I watched the entire Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. That alone, people living through that entire experience is crazy. But yeah, we're we're right in the heart of just music being this huge thing. We're a year away from Woodstock. And uh, yeah, we have this acid rock song that became it only went to number 30 on the hot 100 but that's not how we're judging things because this was the first ever platinum recording yeah this this song and it went on to sell like something insane like 30 million copies or something like that i remember i think joey and i are basically the same age i remember going to my parents friend's house as a kid and like any precocious kid in the 90s, if there was a CD collection, I would look at the CDs. And I swear every single human being that my parents were friends with had this LP, had the had the Iron Butterfly album in the Gata DeVita that had like three songs on side A and then all of side B was just in the Gata DeVita. Like I, I, I definitely remember that, but I mean... If I'm being fully honest, the first time this song came anywhere on my radar was The Simpsons. Like, that was how I this song was introduced into my life, was The Simpsons episode. And then I was like, oh, that's a real song. And now, please rise for our opening hymn, uh, In the Garden of Eden by I, Ron Butterfly. I remember that. I remember laughing pretty hard at that. They're in church, and... They're singing in the Garden of Eden, and, <laughs> but the funny thing is, at the time, you don't know the real history of where that that those were supposed to be the lyrics of the yeah. song. Well, and then also, I mean, it has that great bit where they're singing the song. There's a couple great lines in there. They're singing in in the Garden of Eden, and then Homer leads over to Marge and goes, "Hey, remember when we used to make out in my van to this hymn?" <laughs> Which is a great, a great line. And then it says, 17 minutes later." And they finish the song and the organist collapses onto the organ and falls over. <laughs> but as a kid, I didn't get, I was like, why does, why was this song 17 minutes long? And the, like, there's like jokes that completely went over my head. And now I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, that joke just gets funnier the more you know about the real song and this band and this crazy version of the song. I remember in high school, I didn't have a CD burner, so I would ask people to burn CDs for me and I'd send them like hey can you 
burn a CD with like these tracks on it for me. And the one was just like, I have this insane album that's like 50 tracks, but like 48 of the tracks are just like funny little audio clips that you found on the internet, like fake parody songs that I thought were funny. And then smack in the middle is the 17 minute version of (laughs) God of DeVita. And then back to like these 30 second little short clips again. Weird. I'm a weird kid. I I always was a weird kid, Chris. You're learning this every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, just, you know, so they didn't intend for the song to be 17 minutes long. They're at the recording studio. This song was a sound check. So the the engineer is in the room. The producer wow. hadn't even gotten there yet, and the engineers they're just checking mics. They hit record, and they just it's basically like a jam session of the song. They never intended it to be seventeen minutes. Wow, it's, I didn't know that. I mean, that's it's, crazy. But they this was like an early song in there. So this was a note that I saw anyway. So we'll. I mean, obviously, anytime that you're pulling information from the internet, take it with a grain of salt. But it said that even though. Um, the songs are usually quite structured. The idea of this minute and a half ballad becoming a jam session was kind of an early thing because Jeff Beck claims that he saw them perform at the Galaxy Club in Los Angeles in April 1967, like a, almost like a year before the album was released, and that their entire second set was just a 35-minute long yeah. version of In the God of <laughs> DeVita. <laughs> like, that's a lot, man. <laughs> I, I, that's really a lot. I mean, the single version of this song, the it's one that went to number two minutes 30, and fifty seconds. Yeah, it's only two minutes. There's, there's, there's not much to this song, and that's why that was the first question I asked Joey. Is like, I tried so hard to listen to the whole thing. I'm just so bored. It just when goes did you on. get? There's a two and a half minute long drum solo. That's, <laughs> That's a not it's, impressive it's a great drum solo. solo though. <laughs> you think it's great? I was so unimpressed uh, by his drum solo. Come on, it's, it's, you got to remember, it's 1968. They don't have Metallica CDs to be inspired by. Well, you know, they're the first to do what they're doing. True. I don't think that this was the intention, right? But I think the biggest reward of listening to the full 17-minute version is that you're right. It's drawn out and it's kind of boring, but it makes when it kicks back into that bad, yes. bad like. The the feeling you get after that 14-minute boring journey right back into this song that rocks, you're kind of just like, hell yeah! Like you get like this adrenaline kick from it coming back in. I guess I should have stuck in. with it. Yeah. I should have stuck with it, baby. Yeah, it's I like a slow burn. That. It's like watching a slow burn horror movie. You got to wait for the payoff. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, I had very low expectations kind of researching the song. But yeah, when I listened to it, Exactly what you said. When it kicks back in, I got unexpected chills yeah. that, I, that I was not <laughs> expecting. Like when, when I guess it's the post-chorus. It's like a chorus and a post-chorus. There's no verses. I think. Yeah. In this. I don't know. But when it comes to the oh, won't you come? With I got chills. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. Do you think? I was thinking of like, obviously, there's this band was somewhat influential. Like Chris said, they're considered one of the first heavy metal bands. Well, yeah, and all that. But I think. As I was listening to this, the band that I think probably is the biggest Iron Butterfly fan in the world was probably like typo negative, right? Like you've got that deep bassy vocalist and you've got the like gothy metal sound and you've got the organ like overlaid over top of everything. I'm like, this is this is like 
Peter Steele's favorite band, I'm willing to bet. Like, I would put money down on that. Well, I, I would think, like, Scott Staff was, yeah. was yeah. heavily influenced. <laughs> yeah. like, it, it's like the first year of Well, I, I, I have a list. <laughs> there was a list of bands that have claimed them as an influence, and it was Black Sabbath, ACDC, Rush, Alice Cooper, Mountain, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, Slayer, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and the Queens of the Stone Age. I absolutely can imagine the Queens of the Stone Age fucking loving Iron Butterfly. <laughs> I think you forgot a really important one, Matt. Which one? Which is the Beatles. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, least... Ringo Starr's drum solo in the end is inspired by this, right? Yeah. like, And that was <laughs> shortly after this was released. I mean, this band was influencing the Beatles, let alone all the hard rock and metal that was to come regardless of my thoughts on the song it was definitely influential and yes it only the song only went to number 30 but the album sold 30 million copies and was on the charts for 140 consecutive weeks wow i still i don't get it i kind of don't get <laughs> it with all the great music that was out there in the 60s everything from motown to the beatles the stones everything why Why were people connecting to this so much? What is it? it did, did you listen to other songs that were on the album? I did, and yeah, that, none of it. Like, there's, a couple, there's a couple that, that they are actually interesting in, in terms of like, it's you have the psychedelic rock, mm -hmm. which they obviously is their wheelhouse, but then you, there's little sprinkles of Davy Jones' late 60s bubblegum kind of pop influences in there and on, on some of the other non-Inagata DeVita tracks. Uh I, I don't know. They're like, I'm never going to go back and, and listen, but it was, it, I, I liked, I thought the songs were pretty cool. Chris, I also have to think that a big part of it is that none of us are on psychedelic drugs while I know, listening I was to just it. Like, that. like, I think that that's also part of it is like, I've never done a drug in my life, but I would imagine that if I was ever high for any reason, like, had a surgery and was on painkillers. I'd probably want on the list of like, okay, I'm high for the only time possibly in my life. What are some things I want to do? Listen to In the God of DeVita might be somewhere on that list. Like just well, take it in. You, <laughs> I guess that does make sense. I mean, a lot of people were tripping at this time. Yeah. I wouldn't think so many people were tripping that it would stay on the charts for 140 <laughs> weeks in a row. But Acid flashbacks, baby. They're crazy. But also you're you getting a three minute best version of it on the on the charts. The important <laughs> the important word here, I guess, is trip. And from yeah. what you guys are saying, this song is like you're going on a trip. So Maybe that makes sense, you know? There wasn't yeah. So speaking speaking of that, I don't know if you guys googled performances, but there there was a show called Playboy After Dark yep. and it, whatever you're picturing in your head is exactly yeah. what the show was. <laughs> so Iron Butterfly is playing in the Gata Vida. I think it's, you know, I think they're just playing to the recording. But the dancing that these people are doing in the I've never seen dancing like this <laughs> right. ever. And you know, it's like Hugh Hefner with the pipe interviewing the lead singer, like, oh, you know, you guys are very, uh, tell us about the name of the band. And and there's a really creepy, like, Bill Cosby, late 60s Bill Cosby. He's like, what was the name of that song? <laughs> Inagata de Vida? Inagata de what? You know, just, and, just drugging all the women. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, he, he had two pockets full of drugs oh, ready God. to go. Um, yeah, so it's that, I guess it makes sense that you match the drugs of the time <laughs> with the fact that this is probably the heaviest shit out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Their like first you... album was literally called Heavy. Right. I guess I get it. I guess I get it. They're forefathers. Well, 
all the stuff you mentioned at the top of the podcast, you know, I, I, I had to, because I don't have any memories attached no. to this song. I, I have no emotional connection. So I really did some research on um, kind of what was going on in the country at the time in 1968. It's just a crazy time, right? So so LBJ didn't run for re-election. Um, you know, his presidency was super unpopular. The Vietnam War, as you mentioned, was at the height of the U.S. involvement, like tons of casualties, tons of protests in the cities. It's the year that Martin Luther King was shot. It's the year that Robert F. Kennedy was shot. Nixon's elected as president. It's just... And this song so reflects all of that. Yeah. Like, you could just see any 60s documentaries. You know, this song could be the soundtrack for whatever you're well, watching. I, yeah. I think that that's... One of the things that I like about the song, and I already thought this before I ever saw this movie... But there's like an element of this movie that, or this song that feels kind of scary and unsettling because mm-hmm. it's so long as well. And then there's the movie Manhunter, um, which is the first ever Hannibal Lecter movie. It was from 1968, oh. directed by Michael Mann. And in the scene, when they when he finds the killer that he's been trying to track down, this was the original version of Red Dragon. Um, it is this, he enters this room and inside the room is just a projector projecting psychedelic images and this song's playing at the loudest volume and it's like an 8 minute shootout sequence with that middle part of the song playing leading into that ending part where it kicks back in and it's wow. it's so perfect for how the song used to make me feel before I even knew that it was used in that way because it is like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, you guys talk all the time about Halloween playlists and what songs to add. Yeah. This one goes perfect. This, I mean, it, it. Or do you go with the Slayer version <laughs> that was on the yeah. Less Than Zero soundtrack? You, we mentioned Woodstock earlier on. I this was my favorite thing that I found in my research was that they were supposed to play Woodstock. Right? They were supposed to play the first Woodstock, and they got stuck at LaGuardia Airport. They explained the situation to the concert performer and asked for patience, but then their manager sent a telegram demanding that Iron Butterfly be flown in by a helicopter, whereupon they will immediately take the stage, and then after (laughs) their set will be paid and put back into the uh, helicopter to be flown back to the LaGuardia airport. And according to their drummer, they would just keep going to the Port Authority waiting for this helicopter to come, and it never showed up. And the Woodstock production coordinator, John Morris, said he sent the manager a telegram back that read the following. A giant capital F. Four reasons we can't get into. A giant capital U. (laughs) Until you are here. (laughs) A giant capital C. Clarifying your situation. Capital F. Knowing that you are having problems. Capital Y. You will have to find a capital O other transportation capital U unless you plan not to come. So basically, just send a fuck you telegram in the form of a letter to to wow. the band back. Uh, and I was like, that's yeah, pretty awesome. I mean, it's a big what if there? I mean, what if they played Woodstock and their set was legendary, more you know legendary than Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner? I mean, what if they did a seventeen minute version of the Star Spangled Banner in the middle of In the Gata de Vida? Yeah. We'll never, we'll never know. We'll never Ultimate know. universe. It could have changed the course of history. I want to talk to you guys a little bit about Doug Engel, the guy who wrote the song. Yeah, um, the mm-hmm. kind of the driving force of the band. The band essentially broke up when he quit. 
Yeah. And then and tried then to be got, a band again, and it didn't work, really. It didn't work out. But Doug Ingle <laughs> was born in Omaha. Omaha. Um, and within three months of his birth, this was kind of confusing to me, his family moved to the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and... <laughs> And then later to San Diego, but I just like in like in like on a mountain. <laughs> I was confused about like the move to the Rocky Mountains part. Uh, his father was a church organist and introduced him to music at a young age. Uh, he formed the band in 1966 in San Diego, and uh, yeah, by you know they did their first national tour in the summer of 1968 with Jefferson Airplane. At some point, Led Zeppelin opened for them. <laughs> like yeah. they were, mm-hmm. they were. A big deal, which is and kind of funny because their names are very similar, and they're both considered the earliest versions of heavy metal, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Iron Butterfly, a metal thing that flies. Led Zeppelin, also a metal thing that flies. So Doug wrote this song. I'm sure you guys saw this, and Ron Bushy, the drummer, was kind of like writing it down. Like, okay, yeah. here's what the song is. But at the time, <laughs> uh the dude was so drunk that he was just slur. Doug was so drunk that he was just slurring his words. And Ron thought the words were, it was in the garden of Eden. Yeah. Or, and, yep. it, and he just thought he was saying, Anagata Davida. And that's what it became, which I think is actually pr- is great. pretty funny. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this song became this huge hit. And I guess the lyrics are a love song from Adam to Eve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess that's the story here. And of course, uh, it does have in the 17 plus minute version that two and a half minute Ron Bushy drum solo. Uh, the song obviously became huge. By the end of 1968, the band was back in the studio to record their next album, Ball, which was released in January 1969. The album went to number three on the Billboard yeah, charts. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I know we're talking about a one hit, but the next album was number three. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's not. I mean, we've talked about the riding the wave hit before, and I mean, this band literally put out four albums in three years. So I'm sure people were just like, "Ah, the uh, the Inagata Davida band. I got to check out the new album." Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they were doing it, and by 1971, they broke up, and they eventually got back together without Doug and recorded two more albums in 1975. I don't think people really cared about that too much. But what I thought was pretty interesting was. Between 1974 and 1978, after having all this success in music, Doug, he was just managing a recreational vehicle park in the L.A. National Forest, and he spent <laughs> he spent his time painting houses in Oregon, Washington, and California. A true the, out, outdoorsman and, and working man. The thing that made me laugh is that Iron Butterfly still tours. You can go and see Iron Butterfly live, but... It should be known that the four-piece Iron Butterfly is made up of three members who joined the band in the early 2000s, and the most senior member joined the band in 1995. So nobody? Nobody, nobody from the original run of Iron Butterfly. Oh is I think there's only one guy still alive. <laughs> yeah, Doug. It's Doug. Doug's still alive. Yeah. Has no interest in being in the only remaining touring wow. Iron Butterfly band. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy and getting to eat restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. In the darkest corners of the internet, a nameless formless entity has been growing. No one dares question where it was created or what it wants, but those who have been entranced by its musings chant its blood-curdling name in unison. Horror Movie Night! Find Horror Movie Night on your favorite podcasting app or at hmnpodcast.com. Chris, as a bassist, did you ever, did you, you know... You're like, oh, I got to learn this riff. No, uh, Joey is busting out the bass right now, which I think this is a one-hit <laughs> so, thunder first. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. Iconic. And then, you know, the transition part. And then the, oh, won't you... Wow. And then, Dad, please take my hand. But what's the bass part during the drum solo? <laughs> <laughs> just, just. What did those guys do during during the drum solo? Jo- That's a great. I, I wondered the same thing. They're just smoking cigarettes uh, yeah. or what? Lots of drugs. Lots, that's a. That's a that makes sense. Can we also, real quick, before we jump into more about Iron Butterfly and we're talking about the structure of this song, also huge credit I think the opening of this song with just that very long like mm. Phantom of the Opera like organ part Tickly. that like holds the note and then the rest of the band kicks in is such a cool way to start this like weird yeah. song. <laughs> and they do it at the end too. Joey, I I can't state enough how much I love that you're the first person to ever break a bass out on One Hit Thunder. <laughs> I, I knew you wanted I love that that's I did it for you. Yeah, yeah. two hundred plus episodes and we're finally bro I mean, you inspired me. I might want to break out a bass. But that was really interesting because I feel like those bass lines you just played are major hooks in the yeah. song. Like they're very yeah. memorable. And I know it's a lot of like the guitar following the guitar and the bass kind of playing together on this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those riffs are very iconic. And the guy playing them, 
<laughs> this leads very nicely into what I'm so excited to talk to you guys about. The Indigata DeVita basis is, I think, different than the guy that you're about to talk about. Really? Chris, I'm not yeah. sure if you looked at the Wikipedia page for oh. Iron Butterfly and their past members. It is like 40 names deep <laughs> on the past okay. members list. Yeah, Lee, Lee Dorman was the bassist on Indigata DeVita, and then they broke up for a couple of years, got back together. And then that bass player's name was Philip Taylor Kramer. He played from 74 to 80. Yeah, I mean, even I'm pretty sure that the band, I think even from the album Heavy up to the, literally the next album was in the Gata DeVita. It was like everybody quit but Doug and Bushy at that point. Like, I think like they they were one of those bands that was just like revolving door of members every couple months. Uh, you know, we we sometimes use the Todd in the shadows as a as a research and reference point as well. And he, he kind of rightfully joked like this band had so many band changes that there's chances that bad members changed in the middle of sets. Like, like <laughs> it is insane how many members were in this band for how short their actual run of being a band was. Wow. Now I'm now I now I'm disappointed because. I mean, it's still an interesting story. Well, it's still a crazy story, but yeah. Okay, I'm going to talk about this anyway. There's this guy, Philip Taylor Kramer, known as Taylor by his bandmates. He played in the band, I guess, starting in 1974, bassist. Uh, they really seemed to like him. You know, I watched them talking about him. But after the band was finished, this bassist, Taylor, got his degree in aerospace engineering, and he worked on the MX missile guidance system for a contractor of the U.S. Department of Defense. And later, he worked in the computer industry on fractal compression, facial recognition systems, and advanced communications. The guy was wow. pretty smart. In 1990, Taylor, at age 38, co-founded Total Multimedia with Michael Jackson's brother, Randy, to develop compression techniques for CD-ROMs. Now, this is right up Matt Kelly's alley. A dude who loves CD-ROMs more than anybody. <laughs> That's probably. why he was able to fit 50 songs yeah. on that one CD. <laughs> yeah. uh, so supposedly, this guy, Taylor, along with Michael Jackson's brother, Randy, and their company, they developed the first video compression capable of producing full motion video from a single speed CD-ROM in 1992. So, you know, that would lead to like, I don't know, video games being able to, to do that and probably DVD technology, I'm sure. Um, so it's, that was 1990. That happened. So in 1995, this is where the story gets wild. This guy, Taylor, this once bassist of Iron Butterfly, he drives to the L.A. International Airport to pick up a business associate and the associate's wife. On the way to the airport, he called his wife to tell her that the plans had changed and that the business associate and his wife should go directly from the airport to the hotel where he was going to meet them later. And then Taylor spent 45 minutes at the airport for unexplained reasons. So once he leaves the airport, he makes a flurry of cell phone calls. And I'm kind of impressed the guy had a cell phone in 1990. What is this? 1995. But he did. Mm -hmm. On his drive away from the airport, he made a flurry of cell phone calls one of them was to his wife, one of them was to drummer Ron Bushy, and one of them was to the police. On the call to the police, he said, I'm going to kill myself, and I want everyone to know that O.J. Simpson is innocent. They did it. And then prior to his disappearance, he, w 
He was hired to analyze the authenticity of a videotape that the FBI and the DEA had on the O.J. Simpson murder trial. And then he was never heard from again, and they never found his, his vehicle, and they never found his remains for four years. So wow. finally, yeah. in May of 1999, they found his Ford Aerostar minivan and his skeletal remains when photographers were looking for old car wrecks at the bottom of Decker Canyon near Malibu. But Taylor's father never believed that he killed himself. And he is quoted as saying, Taylor had told me for a long time before that there were people bothering him. They, they wanted what he was doing and some of them threatened him. He once told me that if I ever say I'm going to kill myself, don't believe it one bit. I'll be needing help. And they've done episodes of Oprah about this, America's Most Wanted, Unsolved Mysteries, all this stuff about this guy. The craziest part is that one of his last things he said is that he wants everyone to know that OJ is innocent. As yeah. a guy who's never thought that OJ was innocent, I'm like, whoa. Well, he was right because OJ got yeah, off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, this story is insane. Yeah. And now I need to track down that Unsolved Mysteries episode, which probably won't be that hard because I think it's all on like Peacock or one of those streaming apps mm -hmm. now. But there's another former member of Iron Butterfly that I think we need to give credit for. Do you know who was the lead vocalist in Iron Butterfly from 1990 to 1992? <laughs> no, I do not. Robert Tepper. Oh, wow. That makes <laughs> sense. That's great. <laughs> that does make sense. I was sense. like, as you were as we were talking about how many band members there were, I was like, wait a second. We've talked about someone being an Iron Butterfly in a recent episode. <laughs> and I had to scroll through that laundry list of names until I could find the name that I was looking for. Could you imagine what an impassioned performance of <laughs> Anagata DeVita he would make and how sweaty he would be? Dude, we have to, there has to be someone in 1990 yeah. to 1992 had to have captured that on tape. And whoever you are, please make sure that you upload it to YouTube before you we die. We need to find that. <laughs> Gotta find that video. Gotta find that Tepper. You got to do a Patreon where you guys watch it and comment on it. Oh, I love it. I, I've got to tell two stories that, you know, uh, relate to this song, both having to do with my dad that I swear to you are hilarious if you know my dad, but nobody <laughs> listening to this will. So try to just wrap yourself in the situation. So my dad owned a bakery in the 80s in, in Philly. So right in Center City, Philly. Okay. He was doing well, bought himself a, a black Pontiac Trans Am. So in like 85, 86, a car thief takes his black Trans Am, proceeds to drive around City Hall in Philadelphia in the opposite direction. Wow. The cops are chasing him. He ends up crashing into a bus. And in the midst of all this chasing by the cops, he proceeds to throw all of my dad's cassette tapes out the window. <laughs> And then when they were at the police station figuring it all out, what he told the cops was he didn't like any of my dad's music, <laughs> so he just decided to throw all his cassette tapes out the window. And the one cassette tape that he was most upset about was the Iron Butterfly <laughs> in the God of DeVita. I, I, I thought the story was going to be the only one he didn't throw out yeah, was yeah. Anna God of DeVita. <laughs> I, he I was hoping you were going to say you were watching <laughs> was the news it, yeah. and he had the song blasting out of the car as he was driving in the opposite <laughs> yeah, direction. Driving the wrong way, <laughs> blasting Anna God of DeVita. Still a good story, but I think you should, uh, you should tell that version of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> who's going to yeah. know, right? 
And then the other one was he was staying at the uh, uh, Portacol in Ocean City, New Jersey, and he's up like 10 floors up on a balcony and overlooking the swimming pool where there's a DJ hosting a private event for whoever's there. And he's, he says, okay, well, we're going to... We're going to give a prize to anybody who can answer this next question. Can anybody tell us how long the Iron Butterfly Inagata DeVita song is? And my dad, just 10 floors up, 17 minutes and five seconds. Wow. And he said, he said the DJ looked up at him and then didn't acknowledge him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just picturing my dad just sitting, like, he's been waiting decades for somebody to ask this question. And, like, I don't you know, I don't know your scenes. dad, but I'm imagining that episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza busts out of the bathroom with his pants down yelling, Vandalay Industries. Yes, <laughs> yes. 100%. My dad's, my dad's bald at work. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just like, oh, I've waited all my life for this. Man, Chris, I sent you a text earlier today that was about <laughs> where I ranked Sash Jordan Rats uh, uh-huh. on, a, on a list of important albums that I had posted on Facebook like seven years ago. Uh, I think Joey's dad to Iron Butterfly is me to Sash Jordan. <laughs> well, based on the sales of the album, I would say that Joey's dad in his age range is probably not alone <laughs> in that. <laughs> Um, and hey, I wanted to mention, you know, 1968, there's a lot of songs on the charts that we probably don't know, or maybe don't know by the title. But at the time that this song peaked at number 30 on October 26th of 1968, the number one song at the time was Hey Jude. And also on the charts at that time, at number two was Little Green Apples by O.C. Smith, if you guys know that song. Number 12 was Suzy Q from Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, number 16 was Say It Loud, on Black and Proud from James Brown. Nice. Number 17 was Revolution from the Beatles. 19, Love Child by Diana Ross and the Supremes. Number 20 was All Along the Watchtower from the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And number 25, a song that I hold near and dear, Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf. And the reason I hold this near and dear is because <laughs> I may have told this story before. Or if anybody was following my YouTubes in like the year 2006, there was this moment we were on tour in Vegas and there was like one of those green screen things where you got on a magic carpet and you pretended that you were like riding on a magic carpet and stuff happened behind you and stuff. And you're supposed to like act like, whoa, I'm flying on this magic carpet. <laughs> and me and Fred, our, all of our good friend, Tony Hartman, got on this magic carpet, paid the 20 bucks to get this DVD of this thing. And we just... We knelt motionless for the entire length of Magic Carpet Ride. Well, well, the guy running the thing is like, "Are you guys gonna do something?" And we just like, we just like sat there motionless, and then took our DVD and walked away. I eventually put it on YouTube, but that's what that song always reminds me of. I gotta see. Oh that. yeah, it's good. That's it great. was in a, te- a Texas it. Toast episode at some point. That's phenomenal. That's like <laughs> up there with those people who. Like we'll go on roller coasters and the whole game is to look as unimpressed by the roller coaster, yeah. the oh. photo as humanly possible. I <laughs> never, I never thought of doing that. I went to, <laughs> just went to Kennywood here in Pittsburgh. Awesome amusement park, great roller coasters. I always in those pictures try to look as <laughs> insane as possible. Uh, no, but I never just thought try about to trying to look as bored as humanly possible. Oh, uh, <laughs> next time, next time, I'm going to try to look as bored as possible. Eyes roll like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Chris, I have a question for you. Sure. So, in the vein of Seven Mary Three, cumbersome. Uh, I always laugh when you said, "Oh, this is this is a funny song." Uh-huh. 
Do you consider Inagata DeVita a funny it song? It might be the forefather of funny songs because <laughs> a big part of funny songs is a guy with a funny voice. <laughs> and this right. this might be, we may see the thread. Yeah, you brought up Scott Stapp, but that whole like marble mouth sort of delivery that we all like to make fun of, this might be the first one of those. So, you know... Aside from inspiring all this hard rock and metal, it may have also inspired all the marble mouth uh, goobly goo of the the '90s and 2000s and even into now. Uh, so yes, I would have to give this credit as a as a very funny song. It's a 17 minute long song with a two and a half minute drum solo in the middle of it. So yes. Speaking of 17, another fun fact: the guitar player Eric Braun was 17 years old. Oh, in the recording oh, wow. of this song. That's incredible. Yeah. This sounds like men. This definitely sounds like yeah. <laughs> full-grown men making this song. I can't imagine a, a boy <laughs> making this. But I don't know. It was a different time. People were doing things. People were going off and going off to die. In, I mean, they still are. But people were going off to die in the Vietnam War at age 18 at this point. So it's not, it's not crazy to think a 17-year-old could write an epic acid rock journey. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Um, how we got? How are we feeling about this song? We'll start with our guest Joey. It's thunder or blunder for for Iron Butterfly. Yeah. Keep in mind, this was their only hit. Love this part of the show um, because it's just so arbitrary every time, <laughs> and, and different rules for different songs, yeah. right? Um, I fully expected to come on and be like, "Sorry, Dad, blunder," <laughs> but no way. I mean, the more I looked into it, the more I researched. I mean, the. I'll give them points off because maybe the other songs in their catalog, I'm not, you know, going back and listening to, but they keep playing, you know, they inspired the Beatles, as you said, they were the first of their kind. There's never going to be another 17 minute song that's played on radio. Mm. I mean, I have to give them thunder. I, 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 it's, it's, it's it's obvious to me. I don't know. That's my vote. Matt, how do you feel about it? Well, Chris, you're going to have to make the final decision, I think, because I'm actually going to go blunder on Iron Butterfly as much fun <laughs> All right, as I love. I like it. That's- I love this song. I think it's a very, like you said, it's a funny song. It's an iconic song. Um, even, even with the journey that I spoke of, that journey would be as fulfilling if it was six minutes or seven minutes. Like it didn't need to be 17 minutes long for that, uh, that release to feel great. Um, and also, just like, I don't know, the rest of their music kind of sucks. <laughs> There's still a touring band with no original members, even though the main songwriter is still alive, painting houses in Oregon. Like, it's just, it's a really weird band and a really weird story. I think this episode was Thunder, but I think the band Iron Butterfly is a bit of a blunder. Oh, boy. You guys both made great cases. I've, if I'm the deciding factor here, I was, look, I do not like this song. <laughs> I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I don't ever want to hear this song. I mean, Joey, you, you're coming to it from a different... Like, my parents didn't really listen to this song or anything. I have no none of that connection to it. Maybe if I did, I would have that. So I have no nostalgia for this song. And I did like when you brought out the bass, because I think that those bass lines are pretty cool. Those, so that was a, a pro, that's in the pro column. I, I don't... These are four guys that just love playing yeah. musical instruments. Th- these man. are four guys that just loved playing the same song for a really long time. <laughs> and I can't imagine how what a miserable experience that would be. Unless, once again, you're tripping. <laughs> then 
Maybe it's amazing. See, I, I haven't experienced the song like on mushrooms or something. Well, maybe Chris, I let's imagine. Have... Let's imagine you go to a club. You're going to a club. You want to hear some music, and these four jokers go up on stage and for yeah. 35 minutes <laughs> have just yeah. played the same song like at what be... point are you like i'm going home i'm, I'm gonna go to a that, different bar and hear a different band play that would that would be rough they did influence everybody i mean i thought it was especially interesting they influenced in some small part the beatles like that's a big deal you know yeah. the, and influenced like uh, generations of like heavy music <laughs> in the con column. I'm not much of like a, I guess punk rock is like in its own way, heavy music, but I'm not like a metal guy or something. So I feel like maybe this band inspired a thousand bands. I don't like, <laughs> and, and if they did inspire some of that, like butt rock of the nineties and two thousands, and I really don't like that, <laughs> but ah, this is a really, <laughs> This is really hard. I don't like their music at all, like at all, but they're so influential. The song is iconic. It's funny. I love the story about a guy who was at one point in their band. I mean, I don't love what happened to him, of course, but the story is crazy. I, interviews I watched of Ron Bushy, RIP, and Doug, I think they seem like pretty cool guys who are like, yeah, it's pretty crazy that this happened. I don't even know we realized how big we were or whatever. Uh they seem like good guys. I love what a mountain man Doug seems to be. I love that he's like, well, had this giant hit, sold 30 million copies. Ah, I'm going to go I'm gonna go manage an RV park and paint a few houses. I think that's pretty cool. He probably didn't have to do that. I don't know. I'm on the fence, but I'm going to fall over to one side and say thunder. All right. Nice. All right. Unexpected. So I did not anticipate yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, well, not based on me liking their music, but they are thunder. <laughs> But it's not unanimous, so I do not think it's certified, right? It's Matt? not certified. Yeah, when you when when the year end rankings come up, this one is gonna <laughs> sink. All I don't the way think well, it'll be the very bottom, but well, yeah. uh, and especially Joey doesn't even know. I have a whole new plan for how the uh, year end rankings are gonna go. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah. There's yeah. a million ways it could go. Joey, is there anything you want to promote though before we wrap this up? Thanks for being on the show and being a great guest. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, no, just my YouTube page, uh, youtube.com slash Joey Ritter. I post uh, cover songs, original songs, interviews, uh, sometimes recording tutorials. So subscribe there. I'll be starting a band soon, nice. but it's going to take a year to get three hours worth of material. So have me on again in a year and I'll plug Hell that. Hell yeah, man. Hey, you're always an awesome guest. Regardless of the song, it's always thunder when Joey Ritter stops by. Love having you, man. been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Othalios of the band Punchline and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Friend from the Future off the Punchline album Lion. Be sure to check out punchlinemusic.com for any upcoming news with the band. Our podcast is on Patreon now. Find us at patreon.com backslash OHT podcast for early access to episodes, bonus conversations, and a chance to vote on future songs for us to cover. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on any podcasting app. And tune in next week for more One Hit Thunder. Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.